Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this day. Thank you for being patient with me because I forgot to turn the music off. Thank you for the gift of this study and the opportunity to dive into your word. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless us in the ways we most need it. Guide us during this time. Help us to know your love, to know whatever message you have in store for us tonight, and to encounter you in in a deep and a profound way tonight. We pray, God, that you would um, guide us with the spirit of understanding, send your Holy Spirit upon us, and remove any distractions, worries, doubts, fears, anything calling us away from this place, or anything welling up anxiety within us, that you would cast those things out by the power of your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that this time and all of our lives be laid at your feet. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so we are in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. We are picking up somewhat where we left off after last week. Last week, um, we were reading about the, the story of the encounter with the Canaanite woman. And what we're really doing is we're in this, this, this uh, section in the Gospel of Matthew that's really questioning uh, authority. And Jesus is in confrontation and tension with all different types of earthly authority. He's bringing to light the tensions between cultural and religious uh, authorities and how they historically have been butting heads, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, the Jews. Uh, He's already had altercations with the the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. And in fact, one of those happens right before this. Okay, so we have Jesus coming up against those powers that be those positions of authority, and then we have this very famous story where Jesus takes the disciples far north to Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them, who do you say that I am? Okay, so we've heard this many times before, so I invite you, take any image you have of this story uh, thus far out of your mind, act as though you're hearing this for the very first time, and see what you notice about this particular uh, story as we read it our first time through. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Peter's confession about Jesus. When Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly ordered his disciples to tell no one that he was the Messiah. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So, heard that many times before, maybe something new stands out to you, but this time I invite you as we read through it one more time, listen to the words or follow them along specifically as they are read. Now try and get everything else out of your mind but just the words, and when you hear something that resonates with you, stands out to you, relates to something personal going on in your own life, circle, underline, reflect on those things. Okay, again, this doesn't have to be to reflect uh, theologically on the passage or to understand exactly what it's saying historically. This is, what does this mean to you? How is this speaking to you personally? What is Jesus saying to you through this passage? One more time, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly ordered his disciples to tell no one that he was the Messiah. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we've read this twice through, I invite you to look back over the passage. Again, that was Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. What stood out to you? What resonated with you and why? What questions did this reading pose in you? If you're watching this later, please let us know. But for those of us here, we're going to take about the next 10 minutes. Share with those at your table. If you're at a smaller table, feel free to combine. Otherwise, um, take about the next 10 minutes to discuss what stood out to you and why. What questions did this reading pose to you as you heard it? And then we'll bring it back together in the large group for question and answer and further discussion. So take the next 10 minutes. So we, I, probably since we've been doing this Bible study, we've talked about this, this passage or its account in other Gospels a few times. Um, but if you don't remember, a little reminder of the historical context and kind of the geography of the place where this passage takes place. So before this... There's an encounter with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They come up from Jerusalem to the region of Galilee to confront Jesus. And this kind of climactic moment where Jesus is having tension with the political and religious authorities of the time takes place. And then immediately after that, he takes his disciples 20 miles north to this town of Caesarea Philippi. It's on the very northern border of any type of Jewish territory. It's basically like borderline Gentile territory. And... This is the only time he ever goes there, only time he ever takes the disciples there is for this one instance, okay, 20 miles. So he could have had this conversation anywhere. Why have this in Caesarea Philippi? 
First of all, Caesarea Philippi is, is, was originally a city named Panaeus, named for the, the pagan god Pan. And there was a temple to the pagan god Pan uh, at Caesarea Philippi. And eventually when that region was taken over uh, by Rome, it was named for Caesar. And then it was named for the Hebrew tetrarch, the Hebrew ruler who was related to Herod of that region named Philip. And it was also to distinguish it from another Caesarea, which was a port city over near the coast, near Tyre and Sidon. So it was to distinguish it. This is kind of a seat of both pagan religious worship and sacrifice and secular authority, all in this one place. Caesarea Philippi, if you've ever been there, if you've ever seen images of it, is a city built literally into the rock. It's built into a rock 100 feet high and 500 feet wide. And built into this rock are all these little, uh, you can still see the ancient um, kind of equivalent of them, but at the time, these little alcoves where idols would go for different worship. And at the top of this uh, this rock was this temple to the pagan god Pan. And inside of this temple was a hole in the earth where human sacrifices would be thrown in in offering to the pagan gods. And that area had the nickname of being the gates of the netherworld. Okay, so all of that is important to know based on what Jesus is trying to do and say here in this passage. Okay, so imagine that, this huge facade, this huge rock city, pagan secular rock-like church built on this giant rock facade. That's why Jesus goes out of his way to go here to have this particular conversation with his disciples. So he goes there and he asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is an ancient figure, a prophetic figure from Daniel chapter 7. In this vision that the prophet Daniel has, he sees God on his throne. He's called the Ancient of Days. He's glimmering white. He's surrounded by fire and all of his his angelic hosts. And then he sees one like a Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days, and he is given all authority and dominion over all nations. And it's a prophecy about the end of times and how good will triumph over evil. And when that happens, the Ancient of Days, God, will send this Son of Man, a messianic figure, to come and bring about the redemption of the entire world. And so Jesus, he often refers to himself as the Son of Man. And it's clear the disciples know that he's talking about himself. He's not asking, like, who do people say that George Washington was? Like, some figure from the past. He's saying, who do people think that the Son of Man is? And they don't think, like, oh, Daniel chapter 7, they think you. Who do people think that you are? It's clear to them that Jesus is the Son of Man. But that statement is confusing because it had all these different political implications, just like Messiah, Son of David, all these other titles that have been thrown around for hundreds of years leading up to the time of Jesus. Okay, and so in that, in all of that, Jesus then asks the question, but who do you say that I am? And then we have this interaction with Peter. This interaction that he has, it relates back, and you'll hear this proclaimed in the first reading, from Isaiah 22. And it's very important that that we kind of know the distinction here. So if you would, if you have Isaiah 22 handy, you want to turn to it. Isaiah 22, this is the first reading for this Sunday. I'm going to start a little bit before where the first reading starts. But basically, the prophet Isaiah, he's writing probably, he's writing in the southern region of uh, Jerusalem around 600, 700 years before Jesus. And he's currently, at this point in Isaiah, uh, preaching, prophesying. He prophesied during the reign of about five or six different kings. But right now, during the reign of King Hezekiah, who's a descendant of King David, and in the lineage of Jesus. And Hezekiah, he appoints someone called the master of the house. And in this passage, we see that that person's name is Shebna. 
And Shebna is not doing a great job at being the master of the house. Okay? I have that song stuck in my head. What's that from? Master of the house. Is that from Les Mis? No? What is that from? Yes? Yeah, it's from Les Mis. Okay. Um, yes. So, <laughs> anyways, now I can't get that out of my head. But anyways, he appoints this master. of the, In Hebrew, it's called the Al-Habayit. And the Al-Habayit was a, a definitive title of authority that you had the ability to act on behalf of the king. Okay, so like being a steward, okay, if you were to go to a region as the Al-Habayit, the people were meant to receive you as if they were receiving the king himself. You were a representative of him anywhere you went. Shebna is not doing a great job. And so it says in Isaiah 22, verse 15, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, up, go to that official, Shebna, master of the palace, the Al-Habayit, what have you here? Whom have you here that you have hewn for yourself a tomb here? Hewing a tomb on high, carving a resting place in the rock. So basically, Shebna is using his position of authority for his own gain. He's not representing the king well. The Lord shall hurl you down headlong, mortal man. He shall grip you firmly and roll you up and toss you like a ball into a broad land. There you will die. There with the chariots you glory in. You disgrace to your master's house. And then this is where the first reading begins for this Sunday. Verse 19. I will thrust you from your office and pull you down from your station. On that day, I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe, vestments, gird him with your sash, confer on him your authority. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulders. What he opens, no one will shut. What he shuts, no one will open. I will fix him as a peg in a firm place, a seat of honor for his ancestral house, implying a lineage. Do you see the similarities here? This was a role, a title that was already in existence. The Al-Habayi, the master of the house, played a definitive role for the king that when the king was not there or the king didn't want to go somewhere, he could send the Al-Habayi, his steward, his master of the house, to act on his behalf. And we see this happen just a short time later in Isaiah 36 when uh, the Assyrians are coming to take over Jerusalem. King Hezekiah, he sends both Shebna and Eliakim, the guy who was rejected and the guy who replaced him, out. And they are distinguished in chapter 36 of Isaiah, verse 3. There came out to him the master of the palace, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna the scribe, and the chancellor Joah, son of Asaph. So Shebna is still someone who has a position of authority, but this role of master of the palace, master of the house, has been taken from him. And they go out as a consort representing Hezekiah to try and negotiate terms with Sennacherib, the general of the Assyrian army. And we have a few other instances where that kind of representation happens or is represented elsewhere in scripture. But that gives you an example. Okay? This was a definitive role. And in fact, something really cool. In 2013, they were doing some uh, sifting through dirt uh, near the Western Wall in Jerusalem. And a teenage volunteer found in the dirt an ancient artifact that was 2,600 years old and it's like maybe about this big, and on it is a seal that has the name Adonia Asher Al-Habayit. It's the name of the man who was the Al-Habayit at that time. And it was his, I think it's maybe a part of his seal or part of an inscription conferring that position of authority on him. So we know historically, archaeologically, this was a real thing that was passed down, a real representative of the king. And so if we turn back to the gospel, we see that Jesus, he is the new king, the king of kings, but he's not going to be with us forever. He's going to reign in his palace. So if he needs someone to represent him to be his steward on earth, 
he needs to install an al-habayit, a master of the house, to give him the title of father, a robe on him, a sash around him, vestments, to give him authority and to give him the key of the house of David. And with that, what he opens, no one will shut, and what he shuts, no one will open. And so you see the language here then that's used in Matthew 16 that Jesus uses. He's referencing the place where they are, this pagan church that's on a rock. And he says, you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. The gates of the netherworld, the whole of sacrifice, any kind of evil will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You are the al-habayit of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That is why this historically has been such a strong uh, piece of evidence for the primacy of Peter and his role as the first pope in the church. That Jesus intended to start a church and he intended to establish a hierarchical church with Peter at his head as the Al-Habayit, as the first pope, who passed that authority as master of the house down, just like it is promised in Isaiah 22, that it will be an ancestral lineage, an ancestral house. And we now have 266 popes later, Pope Francis, who is the current Al-Habayit of the kingdom of heaven and its representation here on earth in the Catholic Church. When you understand the Old Testament imagery, where they are geographically, all of that makes so much more sense. Even just on paper, we can kind of, you can kind of see, just literally, like Jesus is doing something here. He's establishing a church. But when you understand all of that Old Testament typology, where they are geographically, how all that fits together, it's clear that Jesus was being so intentional here in what he was trying to do. That we have a church that was founded by Jesus himself, and there's no doubt about it that he desired to do that to use an existing role of authority in the Hebrew world, the Hebrew culture, and allow that to persist in his new covenant, his new church. Just like he takes old things like the Passover meal and makes them new in the new meal of the Lord's Supper in the Eucharist. And he takes these things that people knew were well established so they would recognize that Jesus is doing something new and they would be able to learn and infer what he meant based on their experience of it. Because they experienced this role as someone with authority who represented the king, it would make perfect sense that Peter, as the new Ahabai with the keys, he was the new representative of authority that represented Jesus the king. And you know, if you've ever tried to get in anywhere, the person who has the keys, they've got all the power, right? This happened to my wife this morning. My wife, you know, we just started today um, our new schedule. My, my daughter went back to kindergarten. My wife went back to teaching um, as a professor at Saddleback, both today, the first week back of the semester. And so we're trying, we have this color-coded schedule. It's like down to the minute for all of us. Who's driving who? Who has who? Not to forget our other child. Like, who has everybody? And, um, and so it's the first week of school. She wants to get to school early. So she signs up for the 5 o'clock class at the gym this morning and wakes up at the god-awful hour of 4.30 in the morning. And so, um, but she gets there. And because of all the storms and because of people out of town, no one was there to unlock the gym. And so they had to call the one person who was still in town that had the key to roll out of bed at 4.30 in the morning to come unlock the gym so they could have this 5 a.m. class. And thank goodness they did, because I would have been really mad if we all had to wake up at 5 o'clock and nothing happened from it. So, But, you know, that's the power that the keys hold. Without the keys, you can't open what is shut and you can't shut what is open. You have the position of authority. You have the power. And that's what Jesus is intentionally communicating here to Peter. Later on, he gives this same authority in Matthew 18 to all of the apostles. Or he's talking to them, Matthew 18, 18, Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so he continues that. And later on in John 20, when he confers the Holy Spirit upon all of the apostles 
whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, whose sins you retain are retained, similar language, but more rooted toward the authority behind the sacrament of confession um, than necessarily the hierarchical structure of the church. But you can see what I'm getting at here. All of this flows from the authority of Jesus given to Peter in an intentional way to intentionally start a church, and that church historically is none other than the Catholic Church. So when questions arise about why are there so many denominations, why do you Catholics believe what you do, why should we trust the Pope, all these things are not in the Bible, they're clearly in the Bible, even if you read this literally, you can see it, but also if you understand all that symbolism, everything that existed before Jesus, and how Jesus is rooting himself in those traditions, it makes perfect sense. Tons more I could say about this passage, but I don't want to ramble on. I'd love to hear your questions. So what are some things that you had stand out to you? What are some questions that you have? Yes. I believe it was a permanent. So, I mean, it could be taken away, obviously, and if the person died, then it, they would be replaced. So it was something that was passed down. So every king had to have a steward or someone who was the master of the house. I mean, really, if you think about it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, if you have that position of power and authority, if you're there locking up at the end of the day, like making sure the palace is all clean and in order, like, that's not really your job as the king. You want to give that to somebody else, but they have your authority. They understand what you want to do as king, but they're doing all of that work as your representative. So it makes practical sense, and so it would be clear that every king would need one. We don't necessarily have every single king listed who their al-Habayit was, but we have that very clear instance with the exact same language in Isaiah, Isaiah 22 um, about Eliakim. I could do that, yes. I could. But they're in Isaiah 22, so you can see them right there. Isaiah 22, 19 through 23. Yes. Is is um, is this written in chronological order? I was because I was just thinking that you know uh, what Peter is saying here. If transfiguration had happened before this, it would be very obvious that he would say something like this. So sure. I, I it, is this in chronological order? Did chapter seventeen happen before sixteen or? Sure. Okay. So is this in chronological order? Is the question. Um, I do think there's a, there, it's flip-flopped in some of the other Gospels. I do think, if memory serves me correctly, the transfiguration might occur after, maybe in Luke. And I tend, I've said this before, I tend to trust Luke's chronology better than any other Gospels. Because Luke was a Gentile doctor, and his role, he says this in the very first few verses of his, of his Gospel, is to investigate everything accurately anew. And he wants to put together all eyewitness testimonies as to what this Jesus really said. He wasn't with him, he didn't travel with him, he investigated it all, and he tried to put it in the exact chronological order, I believe, um, for us to be able to understand the mission of Jesus. Whereas Mark, Mark's role is just to get all eyewitness testimonies just out there. Here's the message of Jesus. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. So he, we see certain places where he positions things intentionally to show that Jesus confronts authority now look at the authority he's establishing. He's doing this to emphasize, literarily, things that were very clear to him and the apostles that Jesus was doing, but he wants to make it abundantly clear to the reader who may not have been there. And then John is writing a theological treatise uh, about the divinity of Jesus, and so he's less concerned, I think, about the order and more about the sequence of events that lead to his crucifixion. So they all align. It's not that one is incorrect. It's that they're approaching chronological order in a different kind of way. So I would trust Luke's the most, um, but I don't recall 
if in other ones it happens before or after. Yeah, usually around that, that, that time because they're both transfiguration, um, the Canaanite woman, and this all happened very far north. And they're the only instances really that happened very far north of, of the Sea of Galilee. So they're usually kind of close together. Yeah. Yes? With both Luke and Matthew, the transfiguration occurs after. Okay, great. Yes, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, Mark is the one that also, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about. But I would guess, because both Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source, that that's probably the same case in Mark then. So, yeah. It's good evidence that it's not just like, wow, Jesus is transfigured, so he's probably the Son of God. It's good evidence that they put the transfiguration after, that it occurred later, that they would then say that, and they wouldn't, later on, people wouldn't be able to say, oh, you just said that because you saw Jesus, like, glow in the dark or whatever, you know. Um, they actually knew that before they had this miraculous encounter with him. So, yeah. Yes? You know, how do you interpret this description? The gates of the netherworld, or some other translation of hell, shall not prevail against it. What does it mean, the gates of the netherworld? I mean, how is that, you know, related to the devil? Why does he use the you know, the yeah. So that statement, the gates of the netherworld, as I mentioned, was the, it was a nickname for the area in that pagan temple where people threw human sacrifices into. So it was a literal place in Caesarea Philippi that represented evil and idolatry. So when Jesus is saying the gates of the netherworld should not prevail against this church, what he's saying is like no human or pagan religious institution is going to overthrow the church that I'm going to establish. So he uses that as a symbolic language, but it also can be interpreted literally, like the gates of hell, like any battle army force of the devil and his demons will not and cannot possibly overthrow the church. And you can see that as evident in just looking in history. I mean, like the Catholic Church is the only institution to persist historically as long as it has. I mean, the greatest empires in history, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, the Ottoman Empire, all of these incredible empires have risen and fallen in much shorter lengths of time. And the very messy, at times often run by very misguided or even corrupt leaders, Catholic Church, and yet the Holy Spirit has persisted it because it is true, because it is the Church of Jesus Christ, because he is sustaining it as he promised until the end of the age. So I think that's what he meant, that no earthly institution, even the forces of evil, even the place in that geographic place that was nicknamed the gates of the netherworld, they're all kind of interpretive tools to show that nothing, nothing will overcome this church that I'm going to establish. It will exist until the very end. Yeah, Jasper. Uh, I heard a cool thing uh, somebody said, and I never thought of it, where it was uh, gates are not an offensive structure. Yes. They're a defensive structure. So it's like the, the church is actually you know, going after the evil on the offensive. Yes. And, and the gates can't hold it back. Yes, that's, yeah, no, that's a good point. The gates are a defensive structure. So it's not that the devil is gaining any ground trying to attack the church. Uh, sometimes we have this mistaken concept that, like, that Jesus and the devil are on par. And that's not theologically correct. Like Jesus, God, sovereign over all, all-powerful, nothing compares. In the Bible, St. Michael the archangel and the devil are on par. They're both angels, one of whom is fallen, but they both have that same level of ability, uh, created nature, and the same type of authority, even though one was rejected, that God gave them. And so the devil is not on par with God. Like, you call upon the name of Jesus and the devil flees. Like, it's, it's laughable how weak the devil is. The devil is only as strong as we let him be in our lives. 
The devil is only as powerful as we let him convince us he is when we believe his lies. Just a little lie. Did God really tell you that if you ate of this fruit? And then this huge disastrous effect of sin in the universe. But if they understood, Adam and Eve understood the nature of the devil, the nature of evil, and how powerful God truly was, they would have just laughed. They're like, this is silly. There's no way. There's no way you will ever prevail. So the devil knows he's fighting a losing battle. It's just a matter of how many people he wants to bring down with him, that he can bring down with him along the way. But he knows in the end he will lose. Yeah, thank you for that point. That was great. Greg? I know I probably forgot about it a long time ago, but I don't know if you want to explain like, the fact that it is so clear about Jesus establishing Peter as the leader of the church. Yes. As you just mentioned. But then we have the Orthodox churches break off. Mm-hmm. I know the whole thing, you know, that there was the, when the head of Rome moved to Constantinople and all that, and mm-hmm. the Roman Empire split to the west and east. Mm-hmm. But maybe you want to speak to the fact that why is it the Orthodox people split off and they don't accept Peter, or they have a different version sure. of, of the church instead of the Western church? Yeah, so where, where do these splits happen historically, especially between the Catholic and the Orthodox churches? So um, for over a thousand years, there was one church, one Christian church, and it was called the Catholic Church. Originally, it was called the Way, and then they were first referred to in Antioch as Christians. We have that recorded in Scripture, and then we have them referred to as the Catholic Church by, I believe, the earliest of St. Ignatius of Antioch or Ignatius of Lyon in the early 2nd century is when that name, Catholicos, universal, meaning the universal church, gets applied to the church. But it was always the same church. It wasn't named and became something different. That was always the church that existed. And then that persisted for a thousand years. And then in the year 1054, um, historically how the church developed, there were five patriarchal seats. And so there were five kind of heads of the church, local figureheads. One was in Alexandria in Egypt. One was in Jerusalem. One was in Antioch. One was in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. And one was in Rome. And we know Peter, he began in Jerusalem and in that area, but he eventually made his way to Rome, established that seat there, and then was killed in the martyrdom of, I believe, Emperor Nero, somewhere around you know, the, the mid to late 60s. Um, and St. Paul at that same time. And so these five patriarchal seats run by different you know, church fathers, different apostles or relatives of the apostles, disciples of the apostles. They passed down that role of authority. There were kind of five al-habayits, but the one in Rome was always called the first among equals. So if there was a dispute, he was the one that was considered in the lineage of St. Peter. The primacy of Peter was always clear in the writings of the church fathers. He is the one that Jesus gave the authority to, so that is the primary seat of authority. But geographically, and in a spirit of brotherhood, there was these five seats. And that was fine. You know, you have five different roles. That's a nice balance. When the Muslim empire rose up, in the early centuries, you know, 400 years later, they, in a series of battles and skirmishes, wiped out a lot of the Christian communities in Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Antioch. And so those three patriarchal seats disappeared. Their lineage ended. And so now all you have is the West in Rome and the East in Constantinople. And when you have two, there's always tension. There's always tension. I'm the figurehead and the authority of the East. We're closer to the Holy Land. That's the place of Jesus. I'm the authority figurehead of of the West. We have the lineage directly to St. Peter. You could see how this tension would develop. Then in the East, the patriarch Michael Cerularius in 1054 was gaining a little bit too much authority. He did something that irritated the Pope in uh, in the West. The Pope sent representatives 
to the uh, Eastern Patriarch. He was not there to receive them. They left, they, they left a writ of excommunication on the altar of his church. And as they left, they dusted their feet as the symbol and gest uh, gesture from Scripture uh, says that there's nothing left for us to do here. And that was such a, uh, not a great move, I'll say, historically, by the Pope. Um, not a great move. Uh, that was taken, obviously, very hurtfully by the patriarch in the East. And it's not really, that type of move is not one to really inspire humility, more to inspire further tension. And so historically, East and West split. And at that point, all of those under the patriarch of the East became known as the Orthodox churches. So if you ever encounter Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Coptic Orthodox, any of those Orthodox branches, their hierarchical figurehead is the Eastern Patriarch or other patriarchs that have been established under him. So they are similar to Catholicism in nearly every way. There's a few minor theological differences that have evolved over time. But the main one is that they do not acknowledge the authority of the Pope. And so the last three recent Popes, Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Francis, have done great work in trying to reunite East and West. And the, the Eastern Patriarch has come many times uh, to the Vatican, and they've sat on different committees and things together, and there's been a lot of efforts toward a greater peace and unity between those two branches. Um, but once that happened, uh, there was no other break until the Protestant Reformation in 1517, and then when Martin Luther thought, I know enough to decide what goes in the Bible and what doesn't, and what teachings uh, the church has and what teachings it doesn't, then everyone else was like, hey, we think we're that smart too. And um, I'm being a little cheeky here, but that's, you know, that's kind of how it happened. Uh, and then everyone kind of felt they had the authority to start their own church. And so instead of reforming the church, as they should have, because there were issues and practices going on in the church that were uh, inappropriate, but the teachings of the church never changed. Uh, those practices were reformed shortly thereafter, but those people did not come back into union with the church. They established Lutheranism, Calvinism, uh, the Reformed Church in Switzerland, and all these other branches that, that came from them. So um, maybe you've seen those timelines. If you look up online who started your church and you look at images online, there's these great timelines of when these churches were established and who their founder was. And the first one is always Jesus Christ, 33 AD, the Catholic Church, um, and then they stem from there. So that's, that's kind of the history of how all of those um, things broke off. They can be very confusing sometimes because within Catholicism, we have 23 different rites of, of Catholicism. We practice the Roman rite, which is the largest, within which there is the Latin Tridentine Mass, the Ordinary of the Chair of St. Peter, which uh, Evan, Father Evan was part of, and then the Novus Ordo, which most Catholic churches celebrate uh, the Mass of today. And then in all of the other 22 other Eastern rites, Coptic, Melkite, Syriac, Syro-Malabar, all these other rites, they have the same teachings, but they practice their faith differently in the ways that they have Mass. So, uh, so you, may, you may go to a church that says, this is a Coptic church, but it could be a Coptic Catholic church, it could be a Coptic Orthodox church. So there's sometimes confusion there, too, where it seems like there's a lot more churches than there are, and yet there are a lot of Protestant denominations as well. So long story long. Luke. Uh, yeah, I just want to throw in a quick little, there's this, uh, our history of the, of the Christian church. It's, like, it's uh, on YouTube. It's mm -hmm. the, web, the YouTuber is Redeem Zoomer, my favorite. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, we get back on the topic. Is, uh, I was... Um, I was going to ask uh, other times when God like renamed somebody in the Bible, it's like a big deal. Yes. You elaborate on that. Yes, yeah. So when God renames someone, that's a huge deal. Because in the Hebrew culture, your name was your essence. It was your identity. If I call across the room and I say, Matt Stockton, Matt turns to me, I have power over Matt because I know his name. Okay? That's what the Hebrew people believed, right? 
And so you would hide your public, you would hide your true name from uh, people in public. You would have alternate names. You would have a private name and a public name. So sometimes people just have alternate names. But there are a few instances where God definitively declares someone's name to be changed. Uh, one instance is Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah. Sarah is just a Hebrew translation of Sarai, both mean princess. Um, but Abram means father of many. Abraham means father of a great many, which is humorous because they were sterile, and yet God gave them children. And so he was doubling down on the promise of Abraham's name. And that changed his essence. It changed his identity. He is the father of faith for many major world religions, including Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They all trace their uh, blessing of lineage back to Abraham. And so in this instance, we have Peter, his name being changed. His name was Simon. Uh, this is the first instance in anywhere in history where the name Peter is recorded as being applied to any person. Never before in history was a person called Peter before this moment. Because Peter meant rock. You wouldn't just call someone rock. It was an inanimate object. Um, and what he would have been called uh, would have been an Aramaic kippa or kepa, which was transliterated in the New Testament uh, into a Greek version uh, called cephas or kephas, if you've seen that, C-E-P-H-A-S. So that literally means rock. And in Aramaic, there's no gender to the language. You know, if you learned another language, there's certain nouns that are male, certain nouns that are female, and you have to use the correct ending or the correct article. But um, Greek is gendered. And so some Protestants or non-Catholics will criticize this passage and saying this isn't a proof that Peter is an authoritative figure because uh, he says, and so I say to you, you are Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. Petros and Petra both mean rock. If you know the Jordan city of Petra, that's why it's called Petra, because it's literally built into the rock. Um, but Petra is a feminine name. And so if you're going to name someone rock who's male, you cannot call them Petra because you're calling them woman rock. And Peter is male rock. And so they would call him Petros. But even though in the original Aramaic there wouldn't have been that distinction, sometimes people who are not as versed in biblical language will say Jesus is making a differentiation here between the rock of the church and the rock of Peter. And uh, linguistically, that's not correct. It's just a matter of translation. So, but that speaks to the ways people's names were changed. Uh, there's a common misconception that Paul's name was changed from Saul to Paul. Uh, Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. So that's one of the instances where he just starts going by his Greek name because he's going to minister to the Gentiles. There's never an instance in scripture where he says God changed his name. Um, but there may be one or two other uh, ones that I'm not remembering, but those are the main ones. I was going to say, like, uh, the Petra was, like, the, the, the woman, calling the woman. I mean, it yes. sense, like, if you're to be, like, the bride of the church, like, the bride of Christ. Yes, but to call someone a name, yeah, it would be like me calling you Luket or something like that instead of Luke. You know what I mean? It would just, it, it would sound wrong. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense following the rules of the language. Yeah, yes. Yes, yeah, so if you've ever learned another language, Spanish, French, you know, there are things that have different endings. So even if you're describing something, um, something as pretty, uh, that's not really a good analogy. Um, so small in French, if you want to call something small or call a person small, if it's male, you would say, uh, tu es petit, you are small. But if you uh, are talking to a woman, you would say, tu es petit. And you would emphasize the T because the ending's different. And so you know based on how it's written and how it sounds whether you're talking about something male or female, a male person or female person. And so a lot of the Romance languages and some other ancient Semitic languages, um, not Semitic languages, other um, Romanesque languages like the early evolution of Roman languages and Greek as well uh, have gendered pronouns or gendered nouns.
and even gendered adjectives like France, French, Spanish have gendered adjectives. So yes, Diba. Um, is it, uh, the court, if the in theory, so the question is, if it's recorded, could any priest trace back their ordination to Peter or to one of the 12 apostles? Because the 12 apostles are all given the authority to pass on their gifts through the gifts of the Holy Spirit to ordain people. So in theory, yes. Were records kept that diligently for 2,000 years? Unfortunately not. So some people do know, some priests do know, or have actually on the documentation of their ordination, you were ordained a priest in the line of St. Thomas or something like that. Some of the apostles that have very ancient traditions, like Thomas went to India, and the church established there was very early, the Syro-Malabar church. Um, and so, uh, and I think Andrew, who went to Armenia, I think that was Andrew, and maybe one other, um, went to Armenia. The Armenian church is probably the oldest rite within Catholicism. The Armenian church was officially... Um, uh, the whole nation became Christian like around 302, 303 AD. And the Roman Empire didn't officially become, uh, Christianity was allowed, but the official religion of the Roman Empire didn't become Christianity until 387. So Armenian Christianity actually predates uh, Roman Christianity. And so some of those lineages of Catholicism have more ancient roots that they may have more of that record keeping that may have been done more diligently. But through all the battles and wars and relocations and all the fights, both religious and just political, a lot of those things have been lost. But in theory, every priest has been ordained by a priest or by a bishop who was ordained, who was ordained, who was ordained, who was ordained by one of the 12 apostles. Yeah. Pretty cool. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, this is really one of the questions that came up was um, Jesus asked two questions. Um, what the first one, he uses the term son of man, and then the second, son of the living God. Yes, so, so he uses son of man, which is the, the Daniel one. Um, then he asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And in Peter's declaration, what he's saying is he's basically being as clear as possible about what Messiah means. Because there was a lot of versions of what the Messiah was. Was it like King David, a political leader, something like that? It's clear at this point Peter understands you are divine. Like you are the incarnate son of God. There'd be no reason why someone would add that ending. You are the son of the living God. That makes this, that's that son of God was sometimes used for Caesar. But son of the living God, that was not an, a title in existence that I'm aware of. And so it's very clear Peter here is speaking authoritatively are not authoritatively speaking uh, intentionally about the nature of Jesus, even though Messiah, Messiah just means anointed one. In the Old Testament, anyone who was anointed was called Mashiach or Christos in Greek, Mashiach in Hebrew. And those were priests, prophets, and kings typically. And so you can call someone Messiah, doesn't necessarily mean they are the second person of the Trinity. You can call someone the son of man or son of David, doesn't necessarily mean that the second person of the Trinity or divine in any way. You call someone the son of the living God, that implies some kind of divinity. So that's a very special thing that, that Peter says there. And if he's wrong, that's blasphemy. And blasphemy in Leviticus 25 is punishable by stoning. So for him to say that out loud, surrounded by other faithful Jews, is a very brave and kind of psychotic thing to do, unless he's a thousand percent sure he's correct. Which is why Peter then, or Jesus then turns to him in his faith and gives him that authority. But how would they have interpreted the term son of man? 
they would have thought of Daniel chapter 7. They would have thought of the uh, apocalyptic prophesied figure who was coming to defeat death and darkness and bring about the redemption of mankind. But the way that was going to happen, they all had different theories about. Was it going to be like Elijah coming back because Elijah was zoomed into heaven? A lot of them believed that Elijah would return when the messianic age would be ushered in. Was it going to be another king like King David? You know, was it going to be a reestablishment of the presence of God in the temple that had disappeared during exile? There was a lot of different theories. And so Peter's being very focused in his response. Tiba. Um, well, Jesus quotes that as well. He says, uh, it quotes the, the Old Testament, the, the Torah, when he's uh, talking to the Sadducees, because the Sadducees only believe in the authority of the Torah. And he's ta- I can't remember what exactly he's talking about. It might be when he's refuting um, their questions about marriage. Is there marriage in the afterlife? And he quotes the Old Testament saying, God is the God of the living, the God of, I- the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Um, and so there was an understanding that like this God of the living was God the Father, the Creator. And so to be the Son and the Messiah of that God implied some type of divinity. Now, did Peter have a full theological treatise and understanding of the Trinity and that Jesus was the incarnate second person of that Holy Trinity? No, that took like 300 years for the church to totally understand and hash out. That's why we needed the authority of someone in charge and the guidance of the Holy Spirit as a church to begin to understand these truths that we now profess in things like the Creed. But it was a different distinction than had ever been made before previously. That was the thing that was unique about it. No one had ever called Jesus that before. No one had ever called anyone that before. That, that was different. Yes? Maybe this is an I wish. Maybe it's more of a statement than a question. But, you know, most Catholics' religious education is a confirmation. Sure. And I really wish that the priest on Sunday would use the pulpit for continuing education and use a gospel like this to reinforce the foundation of the Catholic Church mm. and, and teach with it. Sure. And just like they could teach about the Eucharist with, uh, you know, with Holy Thursday, and, and you could teach about the sacrament of penance with another gospel teaching. But that's more of a statement. But sure. Anyways, I don't know if I could, because I I don't necessarily agree that's what should happen at Mass. Because when we hear the Liturgy of the Word, we're meant to, yeah, we're meant to have an explanation of the readings that is to apply to our own personal lives. And yes, there's a formative aspect to it, there's an evangelistic aspect to it, but that's why we need ministries like this. We don't have an hour, and we could do an hour more on this passage and the rest of the readings easily. And so there needs to be something focused But I do agree, uh, I wouldn't say that's the case here, but I do agree that many homilies I've heard um, fall short of the opportunity that they have to really unlock some of the hidden mystery of Scripture and then invite people into it in such a way that it applies to their own life. And so as we close, I want to do that. I want to apply this to our own lives. And the word that stood out to me as we read this was the word but. (laughs) Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? It doesn't matter who other people say that Jesus Jesus is. What matters at the end of the day, and especially at the end of your life, is who you say that Jesus is. Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Is he someone that you trust? Because if you trust Jesus, this reading should tell you, you then are bound to trust the Catholic Church. Because this reading reveals to you that that is what he intended to establish. 
And it's too easy too often for people to voice their opinions about what needs to be different about certain church teachings or church practices. Well, practices we can change, but church teachings. And that we need to be wary of the fact that when we come against those with questions, we're coming against the nature and the intention of Jesus with questions. We're questioning his authority. Who is Jesus to us? Is he someone that's just a rabbi that we can go and debate with? Or is he Savior and Lord who has dominion over your life? And that even though you may not understand what he teaches or what he's doing in your life, you trust and you surrender. doesn't matter who anyone else says he is, but who do you say? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this passage, for the gift of the knowledge and knowing that we are rooted in the fullness of truth that you have revealed to us in your holy Catholic apostolic church that is one, that is unified, that is universal, where all are welcome. We pray, God, that we would live in the joy and gratitude of being part of this family and never grow shy or shallow in our understanding of who you are as our Savior and Lord. We pray, Lord, in areas of our life where we have not given you dominion, where we have not allowed ourselves to trust you, that we would recognize you know what you are doing. You are who you say you are. You are the second person of the Trinity. You are God incarnate. You are the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You have power, dominion, and authority over all people and all things. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to surrender to that authority, even when it is difficult, even when we do not understand. But we trust that you have revealed the truth to us through your holy Catholic Church. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for that gift. Let us never take it for granted. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I've...